Several weeks ago, I plowed through the new book by Rabbi Diana Fursco. Its title is, We Need to Talk About Anti-Semitism. Now, I'm going to start by saying that I have read many books on this foul topic. I will also say that with every book that I read, I promise myself that this will be the last book on this topic. But I have to say that in many ways, Rabbi Fursko's book really stands out. And that's a huge compliment because there are entire bookcases filled with books on nothing but this topic. This book is not really a history of anti-Semitism. This is a large and broad and freewheeling conversation about the subject of anti-Semitism. And Rabbi Fursko writes it in a conversational tone. And I can honestly say that there were many times where I just simply had to stop and pause and breathe and focus and reflect. This is relevant because we are having this conversation in the aftermath of the single worst anti-Semitic act since Auschwitz. I am talking, of course, about the savage attack by Hamas on Israel, the deliberate targeting and killing of civilians, little children, young people, elderly people, taking hostages. This is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. My guest is Rabbi Diana Fursco. She is the rabbi of the Village Temple in New York City. And as I've said, she is the author of the new book, We Need to Talk About Anti-Semitism. Rabbi Fursco, welcome. Good to be with you, Rabbi Salkin. On this dark topic and in this terribly dingy time. So just a few things. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Connecticut as a suburban kid. Um, You know, New York City was the big city. And um, uh, that's where I was born and raised. Did you experience anti-Semitism when you were a kid? I experienced um, things that I didn't see as anti-Semitic at the time. But looking back, um, probably were somewhere along those lines. I, I think overall, you know, I'm sort of in that elder millennial generation and if you grew up like I did, anti-Semitism was largely taught to you as a history. Um, it seemed like something that happened, you know, in the past, and we knew about it. Um, we watched movies about it. We heard testimonies from survivors. We went to museums about it. We read books about it. But for the most part, it seemed like something that happened to them, previous generations not like something that happened to us. And I think now um, so many of us are caught flat-footed and in shock because we really only have a morsel of the lived experience with anti-Semitism that other Jews of older generations um, and unfortunately younger generations now have. I wonder that myself right now <laughs> in many ways um, because it's, it's so intense and it's, it's so dark. Um, but I wrote this book because um, I had always been an outspoken um, uh, um, 
teacher um, and preacher when it came to anti-Semitism. It was just something I saw happening in the world and in ways that made me increasingly uncomfortable. And the more I talked about it, the more congregants started approaching me and, and friends also, and just telling me their stories of encounters with everyday anti-Semitism. You know, things that may, many of us have experienced or read about in the papers, um, our schools um, sort of um, denying us um, our uh, identity as Jews in some ways, or, I, you know, horrific things like a child throwing pennies at another child's feet on a playground. Or I'd have somebody ask me, you know, maybe I should not mention that my child did a, an internship in Israel in the tech sector um, on their resume because, you know, maybe Israel isn't looked at too positively on college applications anymore. Things like that just started creeping in and creeping up more and more. Um, then in, in 2020, um, my synagogue was attacked with a baseball bat. Um, it happened during the Black Lives Matter protests. And I, I share that to just give some context because it was a night of, of destruction um, in the city as people raged about um, injustice. And um, I'll never know what the perpetrator had in their heart, if it was a targeted anti-Semitic attack, if it was something, you know, that was just happening more broadly in the city and, and you know, we were a part of it. But for me, um, seeing that happen sort of uh, convinced me that I needed to take this message um, and tell these stories to a much broader audience um, because I was very concerned that anti-Semitism was creeping from the margins back into the mainstream. And I think that brings us to today. There's something that I struggle with all the time, Rabbi, and that is this theme that people keep on coming back to. In fact, I wrote an essay recently, ostensibly about anti-Semitism, and the editor wanted me to insert the words and all other kinds of bigotry. And I protested and I said, but this is not like all other kinds of bigotry. This desire on the part of Jews to sort of put it into the same bulging file folder. How is this similar to and how is it different from other kinds of hatreds? Right. So uh, I'm not an expert in other kinds of hatred, although, of course, I stand against them. Um, but I think your question is a very important one, um, and I'll just answer it by talking about what anti-Semitism is. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, ha we have a few definitions circulating in the Jewish world, and I like the definition that um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the late chief rabbi of England, promoted, which was, you know, anti-Semitism is not allowing Jews to exist collectively as we allow others to exist collectively. Um, and I think that applies in many cases, both big and small, which is why I like that definition. It's, it's practical for me. Um, Anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory and it's a shape-shifting conspiracy theory. So um, the, one of the core ideas with anti-Semitism is that Jews are all working together as one to do harm, dominate societies, um, you know, control economy, media, politics, etc. Um, and there's a myth with anti-Semitism that it's sort of like a punching up sort of hate. 
because, you know, if you're an anti-Semite or if you have imbibed some of the anti-Semitic um, conspiracy theories, you think that Jews are, in fact, the most privileged, have the most access, are controlling. So anti-Semitism, you know, enables more anti-Semitism. So I um, have encountered that same sort of pushback as you ha are describing in your essay to talk about, um, to, you know, lump anti-Semitism in with other types of hate. And I basically feel, you know, sometimes that's appropriate and sometimes it's just not. Um, but anti-Semitism should be allowed to be understood as its own unique hatred. I've often reflected on the fact that this own unique hatred is the autoimmune disease of Western civilization, that it can lie dormant and then it can come back with a vengeance. And that's actually what's happened in recent weeks what we're experiencing now in the Jewish world. So what are some of the circumstances that can coax anti-Semitism out of its subterranean hiding places? Right. So if you could see me now, you would know that I'm nodding vigorously. Um, one of the ways I describe anti-Semitism in the book as, uh, is as a virus. Um, and we who have lived through a pandemic have a very um, clear sense of what a virus is. Um, it can infect anyone, <laughs> you know, it's very contagious. Um, you can have it and not know it. Someone you're with can have it and you don't know it. Um, it is sneaky, it is clever, it mutates, and it's very hard to get rid of. Um, so the, the problem with answering your question with any accuracy is that anything can unlock anti-Semitism because what anti-Semitism is, is a projection of the gravest uh, sins or wrongdoings of a, or problems of a certain culture and then projecting that onto the Jewish people. Um, so uh, anti-Semitism changes over time and throughout history so that whatever the core problem or the gravest wrong a society can commit, it, uh, that problem is associated with the Jewish people. You have outlined a collection of ideologies, which I'm going to nickname "if onlyism." <laughs> right? If only the Jews would. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So, if only the Jews would is what people today might call victim blaming. Um, but of course, you know the history of anti-Semitism is long, so we had this idea uh, long before the term victim blaming was um, commonplace. If only the Jews would, is the notion that if the Jews could just change in one way or another, then people wouldn't hate us, right? If, and this extends, you know, to antiquity, through the medieval period to today. Um, if only the Jews would stop keeping kosher, we would accept them. If only the Jews would accept Jesus Christ as their savior, we would accept them. If only the Jews wouldn't dress differently, we would accept them. If only the Jews would... Um, stop being a people and identify only as a religion, we would accept them. If only the Jews would rebuke Israel, we would accept them. You know, this is like an, an ongoing trope. Um, and basically, it's a way of saying anti-Semitism isn't the problem of anti-Semites. 
It's the problem of the Jews. And if we would just be less stubborn, less different, i.e. less Jewish and change, uh, then we could be accepted into the mainstream. It's a way of putting the responsibility for anti-Semitism on the victims of anti-Semitism. I don't know about you, Rabbi Frisco. I've been part of, I don't know how many Zoom calls in the last several days, just about what's going on. First, the failure to condemn the bestiality of Hamas. And now I think what's going to happen is a hypervigilance about what Israel will be forced to do in Gaza. What is the relationship between anti-Semitism and a criticism of Israel? I think American Jews are in for a long haul with the way that we talk about Israel in the United States. And I think the way we talk about Israel in the United States has a huge amount of overlap with the way the anti-Semitic ways that we've talked about the Jewish people in the past. And that's very worrisome to me. Someone recently said that Israel started as the state of the Jews, and now it has become the Jew of the states. <laughs> Who said that? I don't know. Someone smart. Yeah, interesting. Sure. But I think you might have said this. The way we talk about Israel today is similar to the way we talked about Jews in the past, that we've carried over themes of classic anti-Semitism into the conversation about Israel. Yes, I stand by that statement. I feel that um, Israel is now the Jewish collective. It's the Jews. <laughs> so whatever people are saying about Israel, it's about Jews everywhere, including in Israel. It feels to me, as a radical centrist, that we've experienced in Jewish history, world Jewish history, American history, virulent anti-Semitism that has come from the right, people marching in Charlottesville. Almost every violent anti-Semitic act, including and especially the attack on Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, has come from someone who was on the right. You put it this way, on the far right, Jews are not white enough, but on the far left, Jews are white, and sometimes the ultimate whites, from not white enough to too white. What I'm encountering is an unwillingness on the part of people on the left, people who I'm imagining are our compatriots politically and culturally, an unwillingness to criticize the anti-Semitism on the left or to excuse it or rationalize it or relativize it. Now, I know it happens on the right, but what's this all about for you? Well, I am a person who was born of, of the political left, raised that way, and still is that way. You know, I'm a Democrat. It's no secret. Um, but not but, I would say all the more so <laughs> when I see anti-Semitism coming from communities that I would align with, I um, feel like an urgent need to call it out. And it's not because I'm, I, I'm saying, oh, this is equivalent, or this is worse, or this is better. It, it's, it, I don't need any of that justification to call it out. It's there. <laughs> and that's a problem. And, and I think, in, you know, we're just, we're only at the tip of the iceberg to see how, how much it's there and how bad it will get. Of course, I hope it will get better. 
But um, I, I do think, you know, sort of like in a, a world of identity politics where we're all sort of examining who we are, um, my, for me, my first priority and my first level of identity is about being a Jew. So no matter what political space it comes from, when somebody is anti-Semitic or uh, groups of people are anti-Semitic, we need to name that in order to um, uh, help people see it and that maybe even help people not be anti-Semitic. You know, what's amazing to me is how often I hear from people recently and even not so recently from Jews who justify or negate or minimize what you have correctly talked about, the nearly daily attacks that happen on Orthodox Jews in New York City, as if that doesn't count, as if it's understandable, or even worse, as if the very public scandals of education that have occurred in New York City and upstate New York that we've been hearing about so much and that really are very disturbing, as if those failures of educational policy and the fact that these people are backwards and medieval and they look like our great-grandparents or they look like someone who should be in Fiddler on the Roof, as if that is enough of a reason for us to turn our faces aside. And this makes me crazy. And you're one of the few people I know, muzzle tov to you, who's actually lifted this up out of the gutter. Why don't we talk more about these attacks on Orthodox Jews? Is it because they are the other? They're not us? Well, I think a lot of things. First of all, we need to acknowledge like there is a great distance between uh, the Reform and ultra-Orthodox world, right? Culturally, religiously, maybe politically, in terms of how we live and think. You know, that's just very real. These You're naming ends of a, the spectrum, right? There are people that are um, defined by living in modernity and still being Jewish. And there are people that define themselves by living in a very traditional way and still being Jewish. So there are real differences between the communities. I, I actually have not heard that it's these attacks on unorthodox Jews are sort of okay or permissible. If anything, I've, I've seen the opposite. Like, wow, this is a wake-up call. How could these people be subject to attacks every day? Um, why, why isn't more done about it? Um, but I, I have seen sort of the other thing you mentioned, which is like really feeling ashamed of what, uh, and, you know, believing the accusations made against that community in terms of, um, education and, um, relationship with the, the government here. For me, <laughs> what I'm interested in is unity and solidarity and relationship within the Jewish people. And if there's something I can do to promote that, I'm eager to do it. We'll be right back. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. 
We're back. This is Religion News Service, Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred. I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. With us again, Rabbi Diana Fursco. She is the rabbi of the Village Temple in New York City. She's the author of We Need to Talk About Anti-Semitism, and the need is very clear and very powerful. Of course, when we talk about the Holocaust, Rabbi Fursco, many of us will automatically free associate to the Shoah, to the Holocaust. And you, in this book, write something very powerful. You actually go through a taxonomy of how too many people distort the Holocaust for their own purposes and to suit their own ends. Can you talk a little bit about that? You talk about denial and minimalizing and inappropriate metaphors. This is something that's been bothering me for a long time. So it's nice to meet someone who cares about this as much as I do. Um, I'm very worried about how casually people seem to borrow the Holocaust for their, to, expre- to express their own pain. In the book, what I try and do with several areas of concern are give us like terms to explain trends. So in my chapter on how we talk about the Holocaust, I have used a term that I've called flat Holocaust, which is basically how um, in common culture, we have um, more in culture, we have currently more and more taken the Holocaust and used it as a metaphor, an analogy, a prism to see our own issues. I was just listening to a podcast the other day, and I heard an employee talk about, you know, oh, working at Amazon was like a death march, she said. (laughs) Well, oh, my God, working at a company is not a death march. I'll tell you what a death march is. It's a death march. (laughs) And it's something that was forced upon the Jewish people by the Nazis at a specific time and a specific place. So as we generalize the conversation around Holocaust, we are allowing it to be um, become less and less specific and less and less part of our history as a Jewish people. I'm very troubled by that. I do not like the idea of divorcing the specific tragedy and the specific genocide uh, from the victims of the genocide. And I think we need to be very careful when we're talking about the Holocaust in public life to make sure we're talking about the actual Holocaust and not, I don't know, vaccine or something like that. A number of years ago, I remember there was a block in the Bronx where the city of New York chopped down a row of trees that apparently were extremely beloved by the neighbors on that block. And one woman was quoted, I think it was in the New York Post, as saying, it's like the Holocaust. Right, Holocaust of trees. And I went crazy. I went totally crazy. I want to say something about stereotypes. Some people actually have said to me, some of my friends, yes, I'm going to even say this, even some of our colleagues have said to me that some Jews cause anti-Semitism by the way they behave. What? Really? It, it just makes me sad. I, it's sad. You know, I do think we have a lot of internalized anti-Semitism. And I do think that Jews, uh, to our credit, are on a, a path to try and be good people. <laughs> we have a moral tradition and we're trying to do everything we can to be good people. And we're quick to say, well, we should have done this differently. We failed. You know, we're self-critical. And that can be a strength in many ways, but it, it can also lead to the kind of thinking that you're talking about. But again, that's, you know, if only Jews would sort of thinking. 
and it's almost a wish like, oh, maybe if I just acted differently, people would like me. But sadly, I don't think history has borne that out to be true. The issue of gender, exactly 40 years ago, I can't believe it's 40 years ago, I wrote an essay in Moment Magazine called Shylock in Drag, and it was about Jap jokes, which have largely disappeared from our culture. Have you noticed that? Yes. You don't hear them anymore. But mm -hmm. what I said was that that was, that was kosher misogyny, that mm -hmm. you couldn't say that Jewish men or that Jews were money-grubbing and materialistic, but if you locate that stereotype with women, all of a sudden, it's okay. This inevitable and vulgar connection between Jews and money, can you say more about that? First of all, I'd love to read your essay. Send it to me. I will. Can I say more about that? That's really interesting. I, I'm not sure. I, I, is it is 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 this stereotype still alive and well? So, for example, let me let me give you an example. Since we're just talking here, a number of my friends were very upset with the movie that I think was on Netflix recently. You are so not invited to my bat mitzvah. I wrote a review of it myself. They thought that that would instigate anti-Semitism because it puts forth the idea that all Jews are wealthy and opulent, etc. Right. I believe that anti-Semitism is a problem of anti-Semites and that poor Jews are hated as much as rich Jews. So it almost doesn't matter. Um, I, I tend to agree with you. I haven't seen the movie, although I'd like to, and I have many teens in my life who are appalled that I have not seen that movie. Um, I Listen, the, the stereotypes will exist no matter what. Um, I, there are times where I feel that there are, you know, films or TV shows that play into them. And there are times where I feel like, wow, this movie or show did a really good job of showing who my community is. So for me, I think it depends on who made the film, who's in the film, what, who's seeing the film, you know, and, and that sort of thing. I am incredibly sensitive to, and I know you are as well, that we live in an overwhelmingly Christian culture. And you write beautifully about the extent to which Christianity was, has been, still is, complicit in anti-Semitism. Is that still real? Are we still encountering that? Is it subtle? So I, I think that's we're still sorting a lot of that out right now. I think that the posture of, say, the Catholic Church, for example, has gotten dramatically, dramatically better than it was ever before. I think the Catholic Church is in the most positive uh, place it's ever been in with the Jewish people and that we need to continue that relationship. So there is sort of like a, a systemic, you know, church sanctioned anti-Semitism that I think has improved dramatically. Um, I would label the vast majority of anti-Semitism that comes from Christianity now at the level more closer to microaggressions. So now it's more about like identity denial, things like, <laughs> oh, you're Jewish, so you go to a Jewish church. Or, you know, you really need to see Jesus. Like, I can help you with that. Things like that, that are much, much better than they were. But in my view, could be even better. 
So that's where I think we are with Christianity. And I have to say, like, I know everyone has had different experiences with this at this moment, but I've been very inspired by the amount of Christian colleagues who have reached out to me, Christian friends who support me and understand the kind of pain and isolation that so many Jews are feeling right now. Um, And I am grateful for their support. You're very lucky. I did an informal poll about this with colleagues around the country, and I've discovered that it's really a mixed bag. Many people have had the experience that you have had with Christian colleagues and friends and community partners reaching out, and others have just reported crickets. I'm one of the people who, who is unfortunately in the crickets category. I'm, I'm frankly a little stunned. And there have been many articles about this, certainly online. And I wonder also, by the way, to what extent the accusations of Israeli overreaction, which appear whenever Israel responds to terror, I'm wondering to what extent some of those accusations of Israel's bloodletting, as it were, go back to very ancient, nefarious themes in anti-Semitism. It just goes back to something that you've said, Rabbi Fursco, which is, if I'm reading you correctly, there is not a single theme of anti-Semitism historically that's actually ever disappeared. It's all in the body. It's all there. It's what Kohelet wrote. There's nothing new under the sun. And it just keeps on coming back for us. You know, you really did your homework in this book. I really have to hand it to you. And you could have written a very cold, dispassionate academic analysis. But I have to say, one of the things that impressed me is that you clearly drew on David Nirenberg's very difficult book, Anti-Judaism. And Nirenberg, as you know, goes one step further than most scholars on this subject actually get into. He writes about anti-Semitism, but not only the hatred of Jews, but also anti-Judaism as an intellectual frame. What did you learn from him? It's an, it's a very important book, but I think it's very subtle. And I'm wondering, if, you know, I'm just jamming with you because I loved it as well. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on his influence on me. Um, I think his work was very important. It was, it's very difficult to read. It's, it, you know, it, it, I, I don't know if he would call it academic, but it, it certainly veers for me into that space. And I, I can't sum up his, his message, but what I can say is that it's a book that's worth a read, even if you can't read it all, because it, it's helping us to see deeper layers of understanding of what this hatred is. And it challenges me. Like, I didn't even know if I should use the word anti-Semitism in my book, because, um, of course, it was invented by an anti-Semite. And I'm not sure it's totally uh, accurate for what's happening here. It's not It's not specific enough, perhaps. But um, I used it because, you know, I, I love people and my book is accessible and that's what we use. So I agree with you. That's his book, the Nirenberg book, Anti-Judaism, is a very important read at this time. There's something else I want you to address, and I'm about to pay you another compliment. And there's a theme and a pattern that I've noticed in the last several years. And so we're getting back to the gender thing. I have noticed something that I don't think anyone else has noticed, but I want to lift it up for everyone, for our listeners. Over the last several years, it seems to me that if I take Nirenberg out of the picture, all of the important books on anti-Semitism have come from women 
Deborah Lipstadt, Barry Weiss, Dara Horn, and now you. And I'm wondering, Rabbi Frisco, am I seeing a connection that isn't there, or is there something significant in what I think is a minor, though important, literary trend? So you are the first person to bring that up to me, but I actually have a piece that's like in a draft form about this exact thing. And the reason I haven't published it, Rabbi Salkin, is because I don't know the answer. (laughs) I I see the same trend, but I don't know why. Um, But I think it's incredible (laughs) that women are leading the way, that women are creating content, that women are adding our voices to the canon of of literature about anti-Semitism. And the one thing I would add is, you know, perhaps an important point of inspiration is that, you know, so many of us have grown up reading uh, testimonies of Holocaust uh, survival from women. Um, and at least for me, that's been an important point of, of inspiration and, and storytelling. So I maybe one of maybe you can explain it to me, maybe one of those other amazing women can that you've mentioned. but. Um, I see the same trend. I think it's a testimony to the ongoing strength of women and the emerging leadership of women in American Judaism. So I I think I could make the following statement, that the most visible rabbi in America right now is Rabbi Angela Bookdahl of Central Synagogue in New York City, Mm -hmm. about 40 blocks north of where you are. Sure. I think that what has happened is that Feminism within a Jewish professional frame has triumphed, though, of course, we know, sadly, pathetically, that there's still a disparity between what women will earn and what men will earn in a similar parallel situation. I think that we're seeing the emergence, and you're one of them, of modern Deborahs, as it were. I'm not talking about Deborah Lipstead. I'm talking Deborah, the military leader from the Book of Judges. I think it is also possible without essentializing women that a historic vulnerability has made Jewish women in a particular frame more sensitive and perhaps even more articulate on this issue than would have been the case 30 or 40 years ago. I think that there's a lot going on here, but you're in a very, very important club. And hopefully that club is only getting bigger. That's the idea. I hope it's getting bigger. But now let me throw this in. We need to talk about anti-Semitism. I'm a, a half generation older than you are. I served as a rabbi for 40 years, a little bit more than that. There was a time in Jewish education, in synagogue life, and in programming when some of us believed that we had talked about anti-Semitism a whole lot and that it was having a deleterious effect on the souls of our kids, that, for example, so much of what we were doing in Jewish education was Holocaust-centric, or on the college campus, we really haven't talked about what happens on the college campus, that so much of what had been Jewish studies had really been Holocaust studies. You're saying that we haven't talked about it nearly enough. I'm going to now up the ante for you. I'm an educator. You're an educator. What should we be doing to prepare young people in Jewish life for the inevitable clashes that they're going to experience in high school, college campuses, middle school, etc., on these issues of anti-Semitism, the subtleties and the not-so-subtleties that are involved? 
What should we be doing better? Okay, so many things. First of all, somebody joked with me and said I should call my book, We Need to Talk a Lot Less About Anti-Semitism, right? Basically on the premise that you're explaining, which is, you know, this is not who we are only. (laughs) We don't need to teach our children that fighting anti-Semitism is the essence of being Jewish, you know? And I I hear that critique and I I believe it to some extent. Um, To prepare people, I think it's a few things. One, um, I think Ahadam said something like learning, learning, learning. That is the key to Jewish survival. Uh, the Talmud said something like we need to stuff our children as full of Torah as possible. Um, we, we need to teach our children first how to be Jewish. <laughs> and we need to do that more aggressively and better and more frequently with more depth and more breadth than we ever have before. We need to run in that direction. In terms of teaching people how to fight anti-Semitism, first step, history. If you don't know about the Crusades, (laughs) you're missing a big part of the picture. If you don't know about the Shoah, if you've never had a class in Holocaust studies, you're missing a big part of the picture. If you don't know about the Roman Empire, you know, there are so many moments throughout Jewish history of anti-Semitism, and we need to learn about them deeply. The third thing is an emotional response, a pastoral response. And I say, we need to validate our children. If they think something's off, we need to tell them, yeah, I agree with you. We don't need to enter them into some sort of like intellectual maze-like conversation about whether it is or whether it isn't anti-Semitism. It's more about, did your kid feel uncomfortable being Jewish today? (laughs) You know, because if so, like that's a problem. And we need to be honest about our own experiences with anti-Semitism. So I like to say, share one time with your child when you stood up for anti-Semitism, when you stood up against anti-Semitism, and share one time when you didn't. Because none of us are fighting back all the time perfectly and know exactly what we're doing. We are confused about anti-Semitism because it's confusing, because it's coming from all these different directions, because it's hard to fight. And so we need to just gather with each other in community and be there for each other and empower each other and do the same for our children. Rabbi Diana Frisco writes these words, when people bring shame, respond with pride. When people spread lies, respond with facts. When people casually dissuade us from embracing our Jewish identity, respond with Jewish practice. Try more learning, more community, more religion. Try having more Jewish experiences. If we want anti-Semitism to wane, we must stand up and be counted as Jews. The book is We Need to Talk About Anti-Semitism. Boy, do we. And we are so grateful to have had Rabbi Diana Frisco here. Rabbi Frisco, thanks for being with us. It's an honor to be with you, Rabbi Sulkin. Thank you for having me. I invite you all, please, follow my regular column, Martini Judaism, on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. The producer is Jay Woodward, and we get production assistance from Julia Windham. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. Look... You would really help us if you download our podcast and give us a five-star rating. Many thanks, friends. Let's stick together. Let's maintain hope. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.